0: Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice.
1: Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast.
2: I am your guest host, Maury Chomp. I am a member of the HPP editorial board and work at RAMS, Inc. as the director of population focused prevention early intervention. I was born in Cambodia and came to California with my family as refugees in 1981. Today's discussion means a lot to me, and I am proud to be a part of HPP's Celebrating Asian Voices podcast series, part of our recognition of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the United States. Today, I am joined by Tran Nguyen, Tina Nguyen, and Nancy Nguyen, authors of Perceived Benefits and Barriers to Implementing Occupational Health recommendations among immigrant owned nail salons in the greater Philadelphia region. They're going to help us explore the findings of their article. But before we get started, I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves and have them share where they are calling from. And let us start with Tran.
1: Hi everyone. So I am currently an assistant professor in the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I was born in Vietnam, and my family immigrated to the U.S. in the 1990s when I was like a teenager. So my mother works as a nail salon worker for over 20 years. So I have a vested interest in improving the working conditions of nail workers in the industry as a whole, because I understand how important nail salon work is for our Asian American communities economically. Thank
2: you. And next, I would like to ask Tina to introduce
3: yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm currently a clinical research coordinator at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine before this job. I worked with Jen for three years as her research assistant and then project manager for the Healthy Nail Salon project. And this project is really close and dear to my heart. I was born in Vietnam as well and came to the U.S. nine years ago. And my mom, my sister-in-law, my aunt, and myself have worked in multiple nail salons in Philadelphia and New Jersey. And really with my lived experience, I'm passionate about creating projects that help us understand what our community is experiencing and how to best serve the community. Thank you, Tina.
2: And Nancy, please introduce yourself.
0: Hi, everybody. My name is Nancy Nguyen, and I am the co director of Viet Lead. Viet Lead is a grassroots community based organization working with the Vietnamese and Southeast Asian community, both in Philadelphia and in South Jersey. I was born in the United States, but my mom was a nail salon worker for about 30 years. And I also worked in the nail salon as a teenager. A lot of the majority of the Vietnamese community members that we work with at VietLead actually, in some way, shape or form, have some connection to nail salons. Either they are workers and owners themselves or their kids work in them or they're being supported by family members that work in them. So it was a really important thing for us to be working on this project with Tran and her team. Thank you so much for having us. And I'm also calling from Philly.
2: Thank you. And I'm calling from Berkeley, California. And let us jump right into your study.
3: So let me start by summarizing the paper. So our paper looks into the perceived benefits and barriers in implementing an occupational health training program for nail salon workers in Philadelphia. We co-developed this program with our community partners, with lead, to really address the unique occupational health needs of nail salon workers. So due to their disadvantaged background as Asian immigrant workers cultural and linguistic barriers and status and family-owned small businesses, nail salons often have limited resources and technical capacity to implement occupational health best practices. And our results also reveal that there is a need to address structural inequities simultaneously with offering health training services to ensure nail salon health and safety recommendations can be successfully implemented. And we would love to share more with you, what we found in our studies.
2: So what are the occupational risks of working in a nail salon? And what are the recommended or required safety measures?
1: So there are a lot of health chemical exposure concerns that we learned from our nail salon community members because nail salons use a variety of nail care products to sculpture the nails and to make the nails pretty. And the industry is constantly innovating with new products. So a lot of time it's really hard for us to actually know for sure which nail products are safe. And so in terms of chemical risk, safety risk, the risk for clients is actually much smaller compared to the workers. Because the workers stay in the salon for eight to 10 hours a day, and they work average six days a week. So that's why for our projects, we really focus on the worker safety and health slightly more than the consumers, you know, concerns about the nail salons because, you know, the exposure is much, much less than what the workers are experiencing. There's also ergonomic risks that result in, like, bodily pain. If they work too long in one position without stretches, and this is especially important if the salons is, like, a very busy, and so they would just work and work without taking proper rest. And so, you know, we've heard a lot of complaints about bodily pain, or, you know, when they do repetitive tasks with nail painting and grinding and sculpturing the nails, those are repetitive tasks, and if you do it for an extended period of time without taking breaks, that will cause pain in your hands as well.
2: Yeah, and what kinds of health problems do people have when they're working in salons that do not follow the occupational health best practices?
3: There have been
1: many research studies of nail salon workers across the countries. And so a lot of them documented, you know, chemical-related health effects, such as irritations to the respiratory system, and then the skin, allergic skin reaction to the chemical. And there's also neurological impairment that has been reported in nail salon workers. A lot of them, you know, reported headaches and especially, you know, I've heard a lot of those complaints from my mom as well. And then so for the more long-term, there's also reproductive health concerns and potentially cancers as well. It's just that, you know, cancers and all those chronic health conditions, it takes a very long time, 20 to 30 years to develop. So there's still like acute health effects. We know chronic health effects. I think there's still more research that needs to be done to, know for certain some of the you know, long-term health effects. But we have hearing people reporting a lot of the acute health effects from working in nail salons.
3: Yeah,
2: let's talk now about your study. You mentioned that you worked with community partners. Can you tell us more about that?
3: Yes. So at Drexel, we worked hand-in-hand with Bitly a nonprofit organization that serves Vietnamese and Southeast Asian communities in Philadelphia area. We worked with our community partners in every step along the way in co-developing this project, from developing the training materials, assessment tools, evaluation questionnaire, to recruiting the training participants. We also trained Fitlist staff members in the training materials and support them in delivering and evaluating the training. We believe in the train-the-trainer model when the community members are trained and empowered to spread the knowledge to their community members. Now, Nancy Win lead co-director, will share more with you about their organization and mission.
0: Yeah, so I think if it's okay, I'd like to take maybe a couple of steps back to talk about why the you nail know, salon industry has so many Vietnamese people, Southeast Asian people, Asian American people, you know, in that industry, right? So like uh, what is, I think, more now called like the care economy. So like many other immigrant communities that have arrived in the United States due to the limited, and I think we see a long history of this if we think about like sort of the broader Asian American history, there's like industries that folks start Populating because there are no other opportunities. So I think in the Chinese community, like way, way back, there was like an overrepresentation in like laundry mats, for example. And I think like in the 1970s, there's some sort of like popular folklore about how, you know, Vietnamese folks started in the nail industry because there was, I think there was like a Hollywood star or something that like introduced this field to folks. And then it was like, oh, this is like a way for you to build your own life very much in sort of the american dream where it's like you come to this country and then you pick yourself up from your bootstraps and that's how you make a life and i think that that story that narrative has a lot of american dreams you know parts to it that make it very quote-unquote popular but it's not actually accurate it doesn't actually represent the economic barriers that have existed continue to exist that become barriers such that when folks come to this country they're pulled into a sector of work that is actually, like folks here have named, very unsafe, very overworked, and is part of a longer trajectory about what's happening in the United States in terms of economically what's available to immigrants when they come here, right? And so, you know, I grew up, I had said before, I grew up as like a young person, a lot of folks here who myself, my family, my mother, you know, were all supported by this industry where these occupational hazards are very real. But that we understand that coming at it, like coming at it from just the perspective of like, okay, what can one nail salon do? What can workers or owners do within their own nail salon is very important and part of the key to sort of improving working conditions, but can't be done without larger structural changes. And so what we were excited about doing with Tran and her team was that they had created this training program that we could bring to nail salon owners and workers. But what we wanted to do with that is like use it as an opportunity to have like deeper conversations with folks, what they were experiencing, what they were seeing, and then start talking about what were the more systemic solutions that could help create a better container in order for them to address both their health and their economic problems, right? And so, that was a big reason why Viet Lead as an organization decided to partner with Tran and have worked with them for the last three years because we see the economic issues and the health issues that folks are talking about here as one of the myriad of issues that is facing the Vietnamese community, the Southeast Asian community, in the United States as a whole. So, Viet Lead has been working with this program through our health work, right? So, at Viet Lead as an organization, we have five different areas of work that we have been supporting our and building within our community. So we do health and healing, which is the program that has supported train and the nail salon work. We do civic empowerment work, supporting our community to like electoralizing our community and building power in that way. Urban ag work, where we do work with food sovereignty and land justice in our community. Youth development work, where we're building young leaders, Southeast Asian leaders, to understand these issues and then start addressing them as organizers in the community. And then finally, community defense, where we are supporting community members who have criminal convictions from many years past who are now facing double punishment of deportation with immigration customs enforcement. And so, you know, this... Project with Tran and has really helped us dig much deeper, develop deep relationships with about twelve nail salons in Philadelphia and in South Jersey. Go through a very rigorous training program, and one of the things that we've seen is like the program affirms what they already know about their working condition, right? It affirms their suspicions about how toxic some of these chemicals are. It affirms like their fear about you know what. 20 years or 30 years in the nail salon would do to their bodies. But I think that what we have bumped up against is that coming to this as like individual solutions, what one, like I've said before, what one nail salon can do is, is really, really, really difficult because these nail salons are operating at a very, very thin margin of profit. And so some of the investments that they have to make in order to improve their working conditions and perhaps as owners is very, very onerous. And so I think an area where we're hoping to build this towards is how to work with these nail salon owners and workers over time to build like a platform of sorts in the city of Philadelphia, for example, to work with the city of Philadelphia to figure out a way to build a program, some type of like identification program that would provide more resources for small business owners, and then to provide more training from the city through organizations such as ours to help with improving working conditions such as helping the businesses be able to provide like paid sick leave be able to provide more like worker friendly fault policies so i'm sorry that that was very long winded but yeah
1: that was that was very good nancy yeah
2: thanks so much given that Vietnamese Americans have been in the nail industry for many decades now. When did the concerns about this arise for this community? Why are we here and why this community?
3: So obviously, like each nail salon community across the country experienced a unique set of challenges. Like, for example, in California, right? 75% nail salons are owned by Vietnamese. Why in Philadelphia, 50% are Vietnamese and in New York City, it's a completely different demographic. Like nail salons are mostly owned by Chinese and Koreans. And we all have very different histories of immigrations, cultures and language and different challenges. But there's things that we all have in common. So 80% of nail salon workers are female, immigrants and low wage. And many of them are winners for their family, or we say they are actually rice winners because we eat rice. <laughs> <laughs> and they work long hours, often 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, like what Chen said before. Language barriers, cultural differences, and stigma of immigrants not only prevent them from getting the safety training that they need at work, but also stop them from raising the concerns about their working conditions. And as a result, they are often overlooked in the mainstream conversations about health policy. And Nancy also mentioned about the social economical disparities and the overall structural invisibility that this group has historically experienced. And we really wanna emphasize that the issue, this issue is not unique to Asian immigrant workers. It's important to really reframe the narrative and recognize the issue experienced by nail salon workers are part of a larger inequities experienced by immigrants, black, indigenous, and people of color communities, women, small business owners, as well as the working class in America. And so this is why this project, pro- project like this are so important because It's really not only empowering and including these communities in the health policy conversations, but also raising public awareness about often overlooked issues. So that's why we are really passionate about sharing this work with you, for you all. I can also
1: chime in a little bit. So, you know, I feel like California Research Group has really been in the forefront that you can as you know in California we have a lot of Vietnamese nail salon workers and I remember when I was going through my graduate school years that was like 12 13 years ago I was really interested in this I was already reading literature that were coming out of California and so you know that was California and there's still so much work that and there's so many nail salon communities that have not been served outside of California. So, you know, when I came to Philly about seven years ago for my job at DREXO, there's not a whole lot of work that's been done. But I know when I talked to Viet Lead about pitching this project with VITLEAD, Lead has been, you know, in the area for a long time. And so from a research standpoint, I was like, you know, if I haven't seen it in the literature, you know, I say, okay, oh, there's work to be done. But Nancy can tell you more like this The community have probably have already noticed in the problem way before, like way before I came. It's just not like it's just the problem is just not been addressed. Um, Nancy, can you tell more about the community in Philly since you've been in Philly the longest?
0: I think overall, in terms of the Vietnamese community in Philadelphia, there are about upwards of 20,000 Vietnamese folks that live in Philadelphia County and about 5,000 Vietnamese folks that live in Camden County. The majority of these folks are considered working class, probably upwards of 80%. Over half do not have high school diplomas. And the majority are refugees or immigrants with actually a lot of new immigrants coming into Philadelphia. And actually in the 2020 census, there was a population increase in Philadelphia that was mostly driven by immigration from Asian countries and Latin Latinx countries into Philadelphia and into Camden County. And so, you know, what I was saying before about like, okay, so this is like an influx, a continuous influx of new immigrants into the city. What kind of economic opportunities lie for them here? And I think that ethnic enclaves such as like this Vietnamese nail salon. And in in many ways, it is like a support system. It is a way for folks within the community to help each other gain access to some gainful employment so that folks can start sort of building their lives in, in this country. But the question is over time, does the pathway in become like a pathway where folks don't actually have a way to like move on from it? And then when folks decide to stay within the nail salon industry for a long time, How do they contend with the health risks that they are incurring, right? And so these are some of the things that we have definitely seen for a long time within our community.
2: Thank you. I know that Nancy had touched on this previously, but I'd like to hear a little more about, I understand that nail technician is a high prevalence of a career path. For Vietnamese Americans. But if you could share a little bit more about the career paths that have been prevalent for Vietnamese people in the United States, and then the history behind the nail salon industry.
1: Yeah, so I love the way that Nancy has phrased our history, because it's really it's very different from the popular narrative that we've been hearing and also watching documentaries, but this is going to be the perspective that I present here. That's what's most popular that's in the documentary. So after the Vietnam War that ended in 1975, you know, there was a huge influx of refugees coming from Vietnam into the U.S., Immediately after the war, and also in the 1990s and 80s, these refugees need to have jobs to support their families. And because many of them did not have, like, you know, English language skills needed for most jobs, they were living it to, you know, service type of jobs. And so, in the nail industry, the actress Hedron is often credited as the godmother of the industry because. When she was doing her work, humanitarian work at the refugee camp, working on this program to help the Vietnamese refugee women resettle in the U.S., she had the idea and introduced manicure work as one of the jobs that the women could do for those with limited English language skills. And the women ended up liking this type of job, and it helped them earn money quickly to support their family. And so at the time, manicure services were mostly catered to wealthy clients and so these first trained vietnamese manicurists went on to operate successful nail salon business for themselves some of them also even opened training schools to help you know newcomers because you know there's, there's thousands of refugees that you have to help resettle in you know it's really hard to find like jobs for thousands of people that come just all at once, and so these women's often credited to like help expand the industry. And so as more Vietnamese immigrants and refugees come to the U.S., the community has really developed like a strong and efficient network to help newcomers to find jobs and really expand the industry. So as an example, when my family came to the U.S. in 1997. I remember my grandfather already sent textbooks for my mom to study even you know just like a few months before or like or a year before she came to the US and was like hey this is what you're going to be doing it's going to help you find job very quickly even with limited english language skills and so her sister who came a few years earlier already working as a nail technician you know in the US and so as soon as she, you know, our family come to the US she already, basically the career path that's already laid out for her. And so it only took my mom a few months to, to find jobs, you know, to take, you know, prepare for her licensed exams and find jobs. And so it's a very efficient way for her to find works while supporting her three children to go to school. And so when you talk to other Vietnamese family, like Nancy has said, you know, I, I'm sure many of us can relate the sort of stories and how our our mothers and aunts and, and sometimes even uncle got into the salons because it's a way for us to earn a living with the limited job opportunities that we have as an
3: immigrant. So Tina and Nancy, you wanted to you add? Yeah, so I can also share from my personal experience. So similar with ji like what she said, this is like a career path that many Vietnamese women took on and with my mom. She came to the U.S. about nine years ago, and she was already in her 50s when she came here. And she was a teacher in Vietnam. She had a master's degree. She had like a pretty successful career in Vietnam. But when she came to the U.S., all of her professional credentials and qualifications were not accepted. For months, she couldn't find any job. And then she applied. (laughs) She went to a nail salon, Vietnamese nail salon, and she's a nail salon worker. So that really really like the job allow her to earn a living in this country and this is just like an example to show how essential the nail industry is to the Vietnamese community and other Asian communities thank
2: you Tina you know as I'm listening to all of you share your work with the Vietnamese American community and some of the past history as it relates to career paths. It saddens me to hear, you know, Tina, you mentioned that your mom, she must have worked so hard to gain higher educational attainment and to come into a new country and not have that be recognized is very unfortunate. and it's such an important example of how personal and political can be interconnected and how important it is to work for positive change at various levels. Based on your findings, what needs to be done next?
1: So I think in our paper, we've highlighted, there's a lot that needs to be done, but in the paper we have limited space. So we're focused on three in the paper. So the first one we highlight is to really have a need to advocate for more safer products, but also they must be affordable in the market because when we talk to salon owners, they said that it's really hard for them to kind of know what's safe and what's not safe. And they just buy whatever that's available in the market, that's available in the local nail suppliers. And if, in my understanding, in the, our chemical regulation in this industry is quite fragmented. And so I'm not going to go with more into details about the chemical regulations, but I'm just going to say that it's going to be like an uphill battle to try to work with, you know, or advocate manufacturer companies to produce safer products, not just for law workers, but it's for the consumers in general. So the second recommendations that we're hoping to get out to the community and, and advocacy So that we really need to invest in the community-based organizations to offer in-language worker health education for both owners and salon workers. And this will require us to develop more sustainable infrastructure and partnership between local and state governments with community-based organizations like what we lead are doing and also like with the employers and the worker community as well. Like some of these programs, we felt like in some places programs are based on grants and like when the grants end, like we're unable to offer that service. I think we need to have some a sustainable plans. to like that's not grant based so that, you know, such services can be readily available continuously over a long period of time. And that requires organization like the leads to really advocate for that sustainable infrastructure long term. And then I think the third policy implications we mentioned is really invest in our immigrant-owned micro businesses. Menancy talked a lot about how these businesses are extremely low resource and operate in very thin like profit margin. And so, you know, we also need the business community to step in. And that might also include like how to offer create peer-to-peer mentorship of best practices and how to increase the profits and still maintaining like a healthy workforce. And so those are the three main policy implications that we highlight in the paper. I think Nancy may have may offer some more Since you know, here we can talk more about other policy implications that's not limited by the number of words that we have in the paper.
0: Yeah, I really think that one area that we need to try to figure out is how to work to build like both more ability for nail salon workers and owners as a sector to improve their work. So I think that I was trying to allude to this before about how nail salon work being seen as part of what is now colloquially called the care economy. It's like a service sector that is non-unionized, right? That like, therefore, working conditions are such that they are. And so I think one thing that not only are we trying to figure out, you know, in Philadelphia that we're learning from in other areas of the country, such as New York, such as California, is that there are real ways that we can improve working conditions for the sector as a whole to perhaps new strategies, such as like sectoral, labor boards that has not necessarily been tried out some really interesting organizing models that can be followed by other organizations like i would love to see the nail salon industry follow the domestic workers right like the national domestic workers alliance what they have been able to do to organize and mobilize domestic workers which are in kind of similar situations There, there's some key differences but This idea that this whole sector that was not unionized before, where workers didn't have a say or didn't have a way to advocate for themselves. So, I do think that there is something here also about how to understand the sector of labor and then how new strategies of organizing, unionizing have to be tried.
3: So, I agree with everything that John and Nancy have said. And I just want to add that really, like, in order for, like, sustainable changes to happen, there need to be a larger education about these issues with policymakers, funders, and general public about the industry in general, the new industry, immigrant communities, and issues that they are facing. So in Philadelphia in particular, there's still a lack of awareness about these issues at the city level and the overall underinvestment in the community and really like we cannot call for fundings when the city doesn't see it as an issue like this is structural invisibility or simply you cannot fix an issue that you don't see and this 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 like result in lack of attention paid to language assistance community outreach lack of surveillance data on this group of minority workers and which filters the reality that institutions see and what they consider as important and how they allocate fundings and building infrastructures. So to review this blind spot education at multiple levels is the key. Thank you so much.
2: As we wrap up, what is your biggest takeaway message for each of you? And what inspires you to continue with this work?
0: So what continues to inspire me about this work is actually this new kind of budding narrative that is happening in our communities about essential workers and about one of the things that we're seeing with nail salon workers and owners too is folks are starting to get a, feel a sense of their own real impact and kind of critical economic engine that they are within the Vietnamese community, right? Like the nail salon industry is like, Multi-billion-dollar industry that has—it is true, right—that has been built through the labor of so many folks in our community, and especially women folks in our community. And so, I think that as folks, especially after COVID, folks saw and kind of had a glimmer of like their own importance in our community. I think, I think that that has been really inspiring. I think that there has been some important in key wins in California and in New York. And, you know, models that we're trying to build off of in Philadelphia about how to support and empower workers and owners to improve their working conditions. And, you know, I just ultimately at the end of the day, like I want folks like my mom to consider themselves and their work important and essential and critical in our communities. And I think that we are seeing that conversation really start to emerge in important ways.
3: So for me, the biggest takeaway and also like what I learned the most from John in the three years that we are working together is really approaching research and health policy from the perspective of the communities that we serve. Because so often research is done like in a top-down manner where the researchers try to answer several questions that not necessarily meaningful or beneficial to the community, and so community-based research is not just for us, not just a methodology, it's a completely different way of thinking. And yes, it takes time and effort to build relationships with community partners. Jun herself has spent over five years building relationships with Lead and our community through many different projects, like academic, non-academic projects, to lead to this point. But this effort is totally worth it. And I, we really believe that. This kind of research will really allow researchers to co-develop questions that are truly meaningful and beneficial to the community members and increase the legitimacy of the work. And this is really what really inspires me to work with John, Nancy, and Big Lee. Thank you,
1: Pina, for that. So, you know, after talking to so many community members through this two and a half year project, I feel like there's continues to be tremendous need for this education but also this kind of needs to support the community as a whole there's just so much need that sometimes I feel like I don't know what it's called but like I you know it's there's just so much needs out there that needs to be done not just in Philly but also in many parts of the country California we're looking to have the California Health and Health Collaborative to kind of be leading such efforts and I'm really hoping, like, you know, and, and I'm very happy that to see Beat lead also inspired by a lot of the things that Beat lead do to kind of help the community, because I feel like as a researcher, I can document things. But the advocacy efforts, we really need to mobilize the community, and that's where expertise from community-based organizations like leads that really kind of take that research and like do something with it and really you know, like help the community. I feel like my work as a researcher has a limitation. And so this is, you know, what really inspired me and like makes me really happy is that VLEAD takes on this challenge. <laughs> so it's like me like, Nancy, here's a difficult problem that <laughs> that we discover. What can we do about this? And this is really, this speaks to the power of community-based organizations and young organizations like lead that's teaching our youth how to organize and really talk to policymakers in a way that kind of speaks to them the needs of our community that's often been neglected for so long. I feel very inspired whenever I work with lead and I'm just feel inspired to just learn about what they do. And I I just like really hope that, you know, something good will happen in the next few years. So I'm putting a lot of pressure on you, Nancy. (laughs) Sorry.
0: I think it takes a collective and community effort. You know, we need the skill sets. I think uh, from all of us, I think it's also really telling that all of us are daughters of nail salon workers, right? like what we could do in our generation that like our parents could not do because of where sort of their conditions and what they had to continue to sacrifice so that we could be where we are in our conditions such that we can shift the next generation. So I think it's iterative, but thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Nancy, for able to come to us. It's really enriched our conversations. I'm so happy that you're able to join us.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tran. I feel like after hearing all three of you speak, for me, it's clear and it's evident just how meaningful and important this work is to raise the awareness and influence structural practices, right? For change so that it's it's the idea that if we can't take care of ourselves, how can we take care of others? And so in this mindset, I'm seeing it as, If the employers of the nail salons cannot prioritize the workers, the staff, what happens when many of them will say, I don't want to do this anymore. My health is more important. And so I think that it's really important that we, the employers, take this matter seriously and have the right support services. As you alluded to, Tran, is making sure that the community-based organizations that have that direct communication and that direct line with the small business owners, there's some of that exchange, right? And that communications to ensure that, you know, if your team of nail technicians are healthy, and there is a guaranteed longevity in their health and wellness throughout their careers, they're gonna stay with the job. And that would also address the retention piece. You know, nail salon owners don't have to keep looking for the next employee to sustain the work. If the practices and the materials and the supplies that are used in these salons have more care and attention to the health of the users. Because I think that for me, I'm not a nail technician, but I put myself in the shoes of a consumer each time that I step into a nail salon. That's what I'm going to be thinking of is the practices that are happening, whether or not they promote or if they agitate health. So that's definitely something to consider. I want to thank all of you so much for what you have shared. And for the work that you are doing, before we close, is there anything else that you would like
1: to add? We're just really thankful for, for the journal uh, and the podcast to give us this platform to raise awareness of the issues and to highlight like important work that community-based organization like Beat Lead is doing. And think our work with Beat Lead is very synergistic. In terms of advocating for systemic change up into the policy level, the role of organizations like we lead is very critical. And so we're very grateful for the opportunity to highlight our work and the work of our community partner.
2: I would like to thank each of you for joining me today for this episode of the HPP podcast. As I said at the top of the show, This episode is part of HPP's celebration of Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Asian voices in HPP. This is a first for us and hopefully the beginning of an annual tradition. And also this year, HPP was proud to honor two papers as our 2022 Papers of the Year. And both papers were by Asian American authors, Through Our Eyes, Hear Our Stories, is the account of a Photo Voice project documenting and archiving the experiences of Asian community in Southern California during COVID. This paper was written by another community-based research team. The lead author was Phuc A podcast episode with these authors dropped the first week in May. Our other 2022 paper of the year is a moving commentary entitled The Tai Chi of Photovoice by Dr. Carolyn Wong. You can find both of those papers open access and free to all on the HPP website, as well as a special Asian American heritage collection open throughout May of 2023 including the paper we have been discussing today. These papers are free to read and download this month. We hope you enjoy the papers, including a poem in this collection. Be sure to watch this space for other episodes in this series. We will add them to a growing playlist of AAPI voices on the HPP podcast. As always, you can find links to all of these resources in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again to our guests, Tran Nguyen, Tina Nguyen, and Nancy Nguyen. And thank you to Arden Castle, our podcast editor, for editing this episode. I am guest host Maury Chom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'll be back soon with more episodes of the HPP podcast. Mm
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP Podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health promotion practice. Take care and have a great day.